out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are, and who isn't? That's the big thing. Anyway, hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. This week's special guest is going to be Michel Brigadidge. He says, slightly stumbling over the name of the band. Yes, because I spoke to her quite a while ago, before this full moon anyway. It was a long time ago. But um, I've been going through the archives and thought I should bring it out. And um, just have it there, in or on the airwaves. So this is the interview. It's award-worthy. It's it gripping. You'll love it. I loved it. She's an amazing person. She also, for those who are interested, and I hopefully you, hopefully you all are, has a website, which is uh, sexyhooligans.com. Clothing designed by Michelle. Anyway, this is the interview. This is the first part. Well, this is the only part, really. Um, but this is the introduction when I'd been asking or talking about those early indie years and the fact that her band um, was around before those jingly jangly sounds. It was kind of post punk. But anyway, the story is going to be told. Michelle, take it oh, away. Yes, that's right. It was about 1982, three. So, you, so this is definitely the post punk period, isn't it? Well, it's the post-punk, but I wanted to bring punk rock back into sort of back because it was post-punk and I wanted, and everyone around was like, punk become like oi and stuff like that. And I wanted to bring back an all black and I wanted to bring back all the colour and the gays and the women and just all the colour of it all that it was in 1976 rather than just all mohawks and black leather yeah. and the music, you know, doom and gloom. I wanted it to be creative and vibrant. And when you, I mean, you know, because obviously, you, were you around during the actual punk period? Yes, I, was, uh, I saw the Pistols many times in the Clash and I'm sort of most famous for being photoed with Susie outside the 100 Club at the 100 Club Festival. Right. So you were right there, because I, I sort of, of that generation who sort of missed it, I was probably listening to um, my brother's punk, no, not punk records, prog rock records, more in the, <laughs> um, the 70s and late 70s, and then sort of started getting more interested in, I suppose, punk and then the indie world. So I'd slightly, by the time I got kind of into music at that phase or stage, I suppose punk had slightly sort of lost its kind of in, enjoyment because it was so it became quite an aggressive thing, hadn't it? No, exactly. I mean, it was getting too. Oh, I don't know. I mean, the punk was just getting like that super fast, shouting, very macho, and I'd say I didn't know the the anarchist types when I started Brigandage because once I started Brigandage, I met Rubella Ballet. And Blood and Roses and all the Puppy Mansions, Kill Your Pet Puppy, Tony D from Ripped and Torn. And so it was just really good bringing all those people to, and meeting all those people together to be energy through action rather than just... It, it just came very macho and shouting. Mm. And I was pissed off with all of that and I wanted to bring back joy, I suppose. Yeah, because cause so, so when when do you when you decided to form a band? Did that sort of did did the process come together quite quickly? Well, the first band I decided to make was with a boy friend of that seventy six, and we decided to have a band, and we called it 
syphilis ferret and the VD scabs. Obviously, we didn't actually get a band, but I did buy a bass guitar, but my parents wouldn't let me play it, so I used to have to practice running around inside the wardrobe, hoping they wouldn't hear when they came back. But of course, when they came back, as I was trying to play Love Lies Limp by ATV, the chandelier downstairs was like shaking, and then I suddenly the doors whipped open on me, and it was my dad, and I'm sitting there in the wardrobe with a little amp trying to play bass. <laughs> so that was a kibosh on that. And then I just I left Ravensbourne and then I went back for a do and I've met Ben and Scott, the twin brothers, and they had a sort of start in a band. And so I sort of pushed my way into, what's the word, audition for the vocal type, but somehow I managed to take it over and turn it into Brigandis. And then we had to sort of advertise for a guitarist and that wasn't easy. I mean, we put attitude and image important and then we met so many people with beards it was just appalling in the end we used to like tell them to hold an enemy or something outside the tube station where we'd stay on the bus and drive stay on it and drive past and if you know we, we stayed on that bus quite a few times excellent excellent so when did when did you manage to sort of get the the original four piece band together um, 81 and 80, 81, 82, and then we sort of, uh, we got Mick from an advert in the enemy on Melody Maker, so that he was the one who came, so that was fantastic, because Ben was the drummer and Scott, his twin brother, played the bass, and then we just started rehearsing and writing songs, and that took about a year and a half, and then we started playing in 82, and then we started getting the attention straight away. Because it's interesting, because doing this this program, you know, this show quite a lot, I do realise that I didn't, you know, which I hadn't really appreciated until uh, quite recently, I suppose, that, that most bands have this great five-year narrative, don't they, of getting together and eventually making a sound that's kind of gets them noticed outside their little community. And then in those days, you've got the John Peel session, if you were lucky, and then the album, a bit of a tour, and then it was kind of a bit tricky after that, you know, the second album. Um, and then, obviously, if anybody ever toured America, that seemed to be the thing that destroyed them. So how did your progress go? Because when you did the album, there was quite a different lineup, wasn't there? Oh, my God. I've been through about nine lineups there. I mean, we had the NME, we had the Pill Session, and then the boys and were about to sign to a licensed A&M just threw me out the band. Completely threw me out the band. Didn't even tell me to my face. And so, because they wanted to go more gothy, and I wanted to stay more rock and rolly, and so I had to start all over again. Luckily, I, I had Richard North, the enemy journalist who did the big piece about us. I started going out with him, and I said, well, you're going to have to play bass. So we went and bought him an 85-pound bass, and he had to learn to play bass. Then I got Robert, love him, on the drums. And let's say, put it this way, we played a gig in Luton. Robert fell off the back of the stage, that's the drummer, and we hadn't even noticed. So that shows you how good Robert was as a drummer. <laughs> and then we got Bob, 
who went on to be in Christian death, and I had to sack him because he was too bloody good for us, wow. and we were holding him back. So then I got Dave, and then we got Timmy Nutter, and that one, and that was the second brigandage, and that's when I did the FYM tape. Then Timmy took loads of drugs and went bonkers, so we had to get another drummer in, which was John, and he had a more sort of Velvet underground style drumming and things, and he was really good. And then they both left, and then I got Glenn in, and, oh, and then Des from Evil Eye. Des, oh, Des had to stand in for us at the Greyhound because Timmy Nutt had taken so many drugs. I think LSD might have been passing, was tripping, and he ran away from the taxi on the way to the gig. We were trying to force him to play. So Des from Evil Eye, who was supporting us, had to stand in for him, and then we kind of snaffled him after that. And that's oh. when we did the album. So the FYM tape is like... Everything the first brigandage and the second brigandage was trying to do. And then by the time, in 86, you know, we were just moving on, like more velvet undergroundy, more factory sort of stuff. Yes. Well, well I guess when you saw, um, it was Spinal Tap, wasn't it, talking about drums? And there was also... Yes. And there was also bad news when they did bad news and their heavy metal sketch as well, which there was lots of reference into drummers. So drummers... Did figure quite a lot in your musical history. Yes. So I didn't quite last, hear that last bit, Dave. Oh, I just said the, the, the you know, because of you know the Spinal Tap. You know, when you watch yeah, that, and they were talking always... about it, and there was also the comic strip, and they there was lots of references to the drama yes. as well. So yeah, that's right. I mean, every time I looked at it, I was practically crying. You know, thinking, "Oh my God, this is us." And I tell you, it's fatal. It really is fatal. Once you. Once you, the first group breaks up, you know, when you've got that magic one, it's really hard. So we had to, like, change it because you can't really go back and redo that magic. You have to make your own magic again in the second time. And then by the album was coming on, you know, we, we've moved on a lot more since then. I know it was a horrible shock for lots of people, but that's the way it was really musically because we had different guitars and different feels. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, no, God, that's... Because one thing that I realised as well is that everything's so unbelievably fragile when people, you know, get that dynamic with a band. So if you sort of lose one member, that's often a bit disastrous and probably the end of the band. But to lose more than one is, is often... Really... It's careless. It's what's La what does Lady Windermere and her fans say about to lose two? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was quite something. So when you brought the album out, which was a pretty funny thing... I mean, yes. was this kind of the peak of the band? Yes, it was kind of the peak, and uh, it came out, and I, I made a mistake. I kind of insisted I wanted it out at uh, 86 at the Christmas time, so of course everyone wanted to do it the next year because it all got lost in there. But then we went to play in uh, Berlin, which was fantastic, but by that time I just had it. Or we then we, we played in Berlin, it was fantastic, you know, packed. The whole lot, it was lovely, the audience got it, they were fantastic. And then we came back and we did the 100 Club, and it was like, who lets the dog in for nothing? And I just thought, oh, what am I doing? So I just packed it all in then, and I just had enough. Yeah. I mean, and the I, other thing, of... I was going to say, the other thing that most people, trips most people up, is the kind of management and the publishing and the business side. How did you all, you all sort of... Um, 
uh, progression go with that? Oh, God. We got one of Ben's friends in Pat, who was like, got us one of the first gigs. And then he wanted to become the manager. You know, he even got a white leather jacket. Then he started hanging around with Saul, who, went, who uh, started Camera Records. And then we did that song for The Whip, um, Hide and Seek. And it was all signed to them. And, you know, we just signed it. And then we didn't sign any other record companies. We got Lowe's, and I had Virgin ringing up. But... It all fell through, and Pat used to go off, and God knows what he was saying because it fell through here. And and then they were like siding with the record company, and that's when I got thrown out. And oh, I just got screwed. So after that, we just did it all ourselves. But at the same time, we were absolutely hopeless at doing it for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we got this phone call once, Trish and I, and uh, at Brigandage headquarters there, our flat in Camden, he goes, Is that Brigandage? And uh, Richard goes, yeah, who wants to know? He goes, it's, uh, oh, it's some publishing company. I can't remember it was. You know, do you want to come down? And <laughs> Richard decided to re- reenact uh, the Rock and Roll Swindle. Well, they go, no, fuck off. He puts the phone down. <laughs> the bloke rings back up and goes, no, it's not. It's for real. So we go, all right, then. Been all leery. Yeah, all right, you know, blah, blah. What's this rubbish going to be? So we go down to Denmark Street, walk into the offices, and it's full of gold records like Cliff Richards and all of this. And at this point, we realised it wasn't a joke. So we go in and have a talk to him about what we want to do. And we were just, like, speechless. We just couldn't say a thing. And he just looks at us and says, you don't really want this, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and we're going inside. We're going, go, Jess, we are. Oh, please, please, please. You're asking, like, in my head, I was on his feet. Going, please, Silas, please. And of course, we just sat there and ah, sort of left. He goes, right, I'll call you. It's a complete cock-up. <laughs> well, that oh. is tricky, isn't it? I mean, obviously, during that period, the other thing that I've noticed with a lot of the people I've interviewed, it, there was a huge amount of kind of, as far as the early 80s was when Thatcher was at its kind of, you know, the strongest or one of the strongest points of their, their government. And, and there was a lot of people who were unemployed and signing on and going to the uh, Enterprise Allowance. That, uh, you know, oh, they, yeah. My husband was on the Enterprise Allowance for years in his band. Yes. We weren't. We just signed on happily. It was great, really. I mean, it's an awful thing to say. There were so many people unemployed. I remember queuing, like, you know, halfway around the block to sign on. But you knew you weren't going to get shoved into a shitty job because they weren't any. They just left you alone. Yes, this is true. And, I mean, did you feel part of any other scene? Because, obviously, at that point, from sort of 83 to 86, there was the sort of the, the rise of people like the Smiths and everything but the girl and... Or the indie pop stuff? No, I kind of went really underground then. With Rich and everything, we lived in uh, Kill Your Pet Puppy Mansions, which was like a short, like, squat-type place. And we were just, at that point, we were just heavily involved in the anarchist punk scene and playing all those sort of gigs and playing with Rebella Ballet and Blood and Roses. So I did get, you know, we came... But then there was other ones, like Ritual. Actually, the first band that gave us our first gig was Sex Gang Children... I mean, I just, I went to see them, and they were just fantastic. So I gave them our demos you did in those days. Go, please give us a support gig. And they did. And we supported them quite a few times, and we actually paid us the most I've probably ever been paid. When we supported them at the 100 Club, they gave us £35, which in 1982 was a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, did yeah, you... and when we played at the Anarchist Centre, and we hadn't, Ritual was, we were using Ritual's drums, or there wasn't a drum, and then 
Retorts said we could borrow their drum kit, but they didn't have any cymbals because he didn't play like that. So then I had to rush off to somebody else's house and borrow their cymbals. So it was, you know, I loved those days. They were fantastic. Yeah. I mean, did you... Everyone helped each other. It was brilliant. It was, you know, I wasn't really bothered about the records and that stuff then. I was just more interested in the anarchist punk scene and trying to change our lives from underneath and be within. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, during that point, you know, there was a lot of bands like, I mean, Chumba Womba had come along and Blythe Power and, um, and obviously yes. the, the crass scene as oh, well. So, the mob, yeah, Mark's the mob. Yeah. They so were had you, were you, did you feel much more of a kinship to that world than the, the sort of uh, SWP and Red Wedge? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> we were anarchists, we had no time for them. I mean, I'm glad they were doing it. You know, but we were on a different trip. Sort of doing it for ourselves, building housing co-ops, getting into housing co-ops, getting housing co-ops, because we just didn't think anyone was going to do it for you from above. Yeah. And looking well, at the band I really, really loved, my favourite band, I mean, I love Sex Scan, is Flesh for Lulu. When I saw Flesh for Lulu, I kind of wanted to give up because it was... It was actually when I was watching Flesh for Lulu, I suddenly realised I've been going wrong for this time. It's because I was, and no one ever noticed it, I was a girl with a female voice. And we'd always been playing most of the songs in, like, we'll say, male keys. You know, you'd hear Shaker Pill or something, go, well, let's do Shaker Pill. And you'd do it like in the key Iggy would do it, you know, in that key. And then I'd wonder why I was struggling to hit the notes. And when I saw Flesh Balulu do their punk rock and roll, I thought, well, oh, there's no need for me, is there? I mean, they just do it so much better. Mm. Because looking at your, the image that you had was quite kind of, um, especially the guys, did have a certain zigzag Sputnik look to them, didn't they? Oh, what, the enormous hair, Glenn. And, and the leather trousers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we were all into that leathery look at that point. Yes, that was our uh, Lou Reed factory. <laughs> meets, maybe meets Sputnik. And did you have a moment then when you sort of all came together to say, this isn't going to be working anymore? Oh, yeah, I just said I'm not doing it anymore. I said, I'm sorry, guys. You know, We've released the album. He hasn't done very well. You know, it was no, it was just after Christmas. It was just I just couldn't do it anymore. I had this sort of epiphany. You know, I suddenly had visions of me like playing some massive gig somewhere, and there's like thousands of people out there. And I thought, well, and, it, it, and it's like I suddenly saw like the hundred people that've been loving us for years. You know, at the front getting it. You know, and everybody else at the back were just. I don't know, just there because it, we were supposed to be there. And I realised it really didn't make much difference. Yeah. If that makes any sense. I got yeah. through. I know, I thought, that's enough. That'll do me. But then, see, yeah, then I stopped and I went to university. And then, well, I mean, at the time I was still making clothes and I went back to university. But at the same time, I still was doing music with my husband. And we did DIN and then we did Brigandage again because... Not with the other ones, but our own version, another version with Des, our drummer, was back again. And Pete, someone else from East Berlin, and we did that all through the 90s, playing at the Monarch. And of course, and keeping it low-key again. So I was, we still made, we made a single in 98. Excellent. So, and did, um, you know, we haven't really stopped. I just oh, don't yes. gig. And, and you know, with, with um, last year, there were several uh, punk books that came out, one by Matthew... Wally, No Future, about punk. And also, one by Richard, who was your bass player, wasn't it? 
Yeah, boys, um, lover, comrade in arms, bass player, agent provocateur. Yes, I went to the book reading of it when it was released. Um, it was in October. Yes, it was, yes. And did that but feel... I only read his, I only read his interview because I'm not particularly interested in reading about it all the time. Yeah. Everyone's punk is their own punk, you know what I mean? And that book probably is a bit more, but I'm just sick of reading about it. Yes. And did it feel nice when you sort of um, bump, bump into each other, the, the old members? What, Richard? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I met him up for coffee for a while again, and he, we were going to get up together, actually, and start. I mean, it's always lovely to see him. Um, but we're going to... Uh, he's forgotten more things than me. So we're going to try and get together and uh, re or our memories, because a lot of drugs and amphetamine and drink went under that bridge, I can tell you. <laughs> I think that's probably one of those things everyone looks back on. I mean, what would you say to your 18-year-old self starting out in, in the world of rock, pop and punk? I don't know. I don't think I would do it any different then. I couldn't. I did exactly... Oh, I was in a band before Bugandis. I was in the VDUs with Jeffers who went on to do the Shrew Kings and King Kurt. And then, yeah, the Shrew Kings. Yeah, well, he was at Ravensbourne with me, and I was just, like, second singer there. So I was doing that first. I wouldn't... I think... I don't know. You can't... Basically, I willed it into being. Like, since I was about 14, 15, I went to be in music or something rather, and then I willed it into being. And I couldn't believe it happened from the beginning. We spent a year practising. We... we gigs for about six months and this will to power and then by the following February we're on Peel and the enemy. The only trouble is I could do it through the force of my will but then I couldn't control everybody else's could I? Mm. So I suppose, I don't know what I'd say just keep those boys on a leash more <laughs> you know, there's always fights with the guitarists they always want to get be louder they always want to write songs that are actually hideous and they're going to make you sing them if you don't want to. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's always those band things. It's, uh, yeah, it's strange because there is often things like people wanting to turn up the volume during a rehearsal, which makes everyone feel a bit sort of nauseated. I mean, yeah, I mean, we were recording for uh, the Whip album, Hide and Seek. We're in the studio. The engineer's behind there, and Mick wants to change something. I can't remember what it was. But we actually had a fight. We actually sort of started whacking each other and then disappeared from view as we fell to the floor from the recording window. And next thing I'm looking up from the floor, and there's a sound engineer sort of leaning over the desk and looking down at us. I don't know how that one finished, ended, but we, ended, we did the song. Yeah, I don't think he changed anything. Because you're not changing anything when we're about to record. You know, those fights all bands have. Absolutely. I mean, because there was another amazing singer called Daniela Dax or Daniel Dax. Oh, God, yes. She's really good friends with Glenn, our uh, uh, the, the, the guitarist who plays on the album. I, I love know. her work. Because when she finished, I mean, again, she did quite a few albums and stuff and then disappeared. And I think we think went back to art school. So your career continued into the world of art. Yes, it does, and making clothes again, which might have been a mistake. No, I mean, it's, yeah, I do sexy hoodigans, so I start, I do, uh, 
punk rock and alternative clothing for boys and girls, men, women, large lads, small lads. Okay. I do sex, um, seditious repros the best I can, and I do my own stuff. Which, of course, hooligans.com, she says, let's get a pro product placement in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, have, I mean, has that been quite enjoyable, sort of um, putting your time and effort and talents into that world? Oh, yes, it has, but it has. I have a studio and it's really good fun, but it's hard time to keep trying to come up with ideas and you've got to keep, you've got to feed the world. So I went back to art school last year again. And so, yes, it's very enjoyable because it marries. I'm much more into visual arts now and fine arts and music, so we're going to come on, it's going to start recording again. It's just trying to find the time to, you know, stop the business and then take some time out for uh, music. But you have to, otherwise you can't get any new ideas, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yes. Well, it's, um. I mean, when you sort of catch videos of yourself on YouTube and sort of listen to record the records that you made, are you slightly boggled by it all? I can't, yes, uh, I, I am. I mean, when I hear the pill session, I can't believe it. The FYM, it's just great hearing it live and everyone cheering. And the album, I mean, I was really upset with the album when it first came out because it isn't quite as rock and roll as I had in my head. And it did, yeah. Um, so, but now I listen to it and actually it stands a lot, you know, it's a bit too, it's more rock than it is the roll. So I was a bit disappointed, but now I can listen to it in and say, well, actually, it's a few songs on there that last the test of time, which I'm pleased at. And when I, when that, when Richard put up on the YouTube, um, that video of us, our last sort of gig in England at the Bullen Gate, I couldn't watch it for ages because I didn't want to look at myself. And then I watched it and I thought, oh my God, how Thin was I? You know, how much drugs were we taking? And, oh, I was quite sweet. I was quite pretty. Oh, my God, that's great. So I sit there puffing away, having to secretly go, that was me once. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, yeah, and it played well. I thought the songs were good and we were all right. It's much better than I remember because you're always harsh with yourself when you're an artist. Yeah. This is true, actually. It's, it's, um, it, it takes a lot to uh, get back. I mean, it's interesting, well, the whole world with the social media, because I noticed that everybody can now basically sort of reconnect with each other. And I suppose after several decades apart, probably three decades, you know, people, I think, are probably a bit more easier on themselves and have kind of dropped their kind of angst and issues. Yeah, I know. Honestly, that's what we should tell ourselves, actually, isn't it? We should tell your 18 self now. Oh, I know what I tell myself as an 18-year-old girl then. I say, it's okay. You are beautiful. It's fine. You're a strong young woman. You can do it, whatever you want. I mean, I kind of knew that, but I would just reinforce it. Yeah. But I suppose also with the world of being in bands is that there's such a competitive and sometimes quite a bitchy quality that... But especially when you're younger, it's it's also sort of raw. Whereas I think when you get older, everyone's sort of just trying to enjoy the music for for what it is. Yeah, um, I wouldn't see. We used to have a little few rounds, but we were never really bitchy. That just wasn't us. We were like, I, we always wanted. My view was always that as a band, you're a family, you know. And we all 
and that was it. We were, you know, like the class, eh? the last gang in town and stuff like that, and they stick together. But unfortunately, that didn't turn out, did it? No. But, you know, then we all, the next lot became family, and we weren't bitchy then. No, I don't think I've ever been in a bitchy band. band. I wouldn't have it. Excellent. It just wouldn't go on. And I was very lucky with sex-gang children and ritual and rubella. No one was bitchy with each other. We were all in it together. So in that way, I'm very pleased and happy about yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, look, Michelle, thank you ever so much. I think I've got quite a bit there now. But um, when I do, you have any MP3s of your music? Yes, I have actually. What stuff? Um, not when are you going to put it together to go out? Um, probably I don't know a few weeks' time, I guess, because I've got a few. I mean, next week is um, Bauhaus. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's no kind. I of... saw L Seven in in LA. They were great. Yes, and I think they're again. It's quite what's quite interesting is that all these bands have slightly reformed again. I think, I think they're all a bit worried that they're going to spoil the legacy and you know all that. But I think they would like just to have another go because because it's kind of good fun and they're not having to sort of bother so much. I know, anymore. but people keep saying to me, "When are you going to?" I've got Mick on the phone now. I was going, "Let's do it, Seminole Brigandis." And I'm going, "Why?" You know, I I understand why he wants it because he hasn't got anything out of it, and. It's, and you want something for a legacy, if you like. But I have a legacy, and I don't particularly want to do Brigandage again. And I, you know what I mean? It's just like, of course, part of me has visions of me strutting on stage, shaking my thing. But I've already done my knees in from jumping off the speaker stacks like Iggy. I've already, you know, I've got rheumatism and arthritis. Yeah. <laughs> Probably can't do it without glasses. I thought, I don't want to be, like, lying and standing on stage. Stage, having to read things, can't move with a crutch. You know, some things should just be left, shouldn't they? I mean, if I was going to do it, I'd be writing new stuff. I certainly wouldn't be going backwards because it's too much nostalgia. And, you know, if we're going to end this now, as Patty Smith once said, I don't fuck much with the past, but I fuck plenty with the future. So that's where I am. I don't, you know... I want to move things on into punk into a new place or you know what I mean yeah well that's quite an interesting one because I suppose last year there was because <clears throat> I think people sort of realized that they could make this 40th anniversary and so they did and um, and so suddenly there's this kind of wave of books and and there was a kind of conference at the you know in Norwich with lots of people who'd written books and academics and it did seem a little bit I, I suppose I find that whole world a little bit odd, really, because suddenly they're sort of writing these great kind of uh, articles about the meaning of punk and trying yes, to... Yes, put... I know. And Mr John Savage, who's there, well, you know, Richard, who's there. I mean, most, unless you're actually there, but each person, it's all individual. Everyone has a different version of it, and it's really hard. You can't say what it is. It was an explosion of energy, and action and revolt and Malcolm and Vivian gave us the theoretical tools through situationism and anarchism came into our vocabulary that made us be able to change it so it's hard to write it down you know I get people email me the whole time I'm doing it on fashion could you talk to me about punk and it's just good. like no I can't I don't want to Every time I, I feel like, what's that thing with Tinkerbell? If, ooh, every time you say you don't believe, Tinkerbell dies. But every time somebody asks me, <laughs> you know, for their thesis and stuff, it's like part of me dies. Yeah. 
it is a weird one, isn't it? So it's, it is interesting, but I think you're probably right. I think, you know, to focus on the future and not sort of um, wallow too much in that, that past is quite an important thing, really, you know. Yeah, so what I'll do is I'll look out for some MP3s. What, what sort of stuff do you want? Well, just anything from your either, I don't know if you want anything from the Peel session or um, the album, actually, the pretty funny things. Yeah, yeah, the album I can probably do. I'm not sure about the uh, Pill session. I'm but it is on YouTube, so I might be able to get that, actually. Yes, I think you might be able to do that. Um, Richard, uh, Richard's got the Regandage channel, hasn't he? Oh, has he? Yes. The whole video's up there, the album's up there, and uh, Pill session's up well, there. I, well, I did, I did an interview with Richard last year for the book, actually, which was really delightful. So, um... I, I will contact him and just ask him if he's got any um, MP3s because they're just a lot easier to play, really. So, that'd oh, be... yes, he might have them, and I've got the album. I've got a, I've got it the CD here, so I can get some of that on the MP3 for you. God, that would be magic. That would be magic. Yeah, I can do the album. I I haven't actually don't actually have the uh, pill sessions, and I can also send you an MP3 of VW Babies. Oh, that would be fantastic. I love that, yeah. Because actually there was another band I just suddenly realised that I used to love during, God knows what period, but it must have been the late 80s. The photos. Oh, weren't they the one with the Japanese girl on the front? It might have been, but she... They definitely had a, a woman singer, but they were quite a, a, a one-album band. But they were fantastic, the photos. Yeah, I mean, just because I didn't like, the, I wasn't part of it, doesn't mean I didn't like lots of that stuff. I mean, thing is, I love Duran Duran. I loved them as soon as they came out. I still love them today. Excellent. And also, I love, you know, I love all, lots of stuff. I loved ABC. Yeah, as well. But, you know, so just because I was in all the punk stuff, didn't mean that I didn't love all the other stuff as well. Oh, I no. don't like the Smiths, though. <laughs> Bloody hate, and I always did. I can't bear the Stranglers, can't bear the Smiths, and I hate the Cure. <laughs> oh, wow, that's, that's, that's a very good one. I like that. Yeah, it's like it starts, I really hate the Stranglers. I yeah. really don't like the Smiths. Apart from that beginning of that song by Johnny Marler, doo -doo, that one, you know, the one here, was it Now or Here, or whatever it's called. And oh, I yes. really don't like the Cure, except for Killing an Arab and Boys Don't Cry. There's not many bands I hate, but every time the forest comes on, I want to puke. <laughs> I don't know why, it just does it to me. Well, that's, that's, that's good not to sit on the fence, I have to say. I'm, I'm impressed. I've never met anybody who disliked The Cure, actually. Well, there you go. The only reason they got famous because everyone liked them is because he became the bloody guitarist for the Banshees for a while. And they was like, ooh, the Banshees, The Cure. And suddenly they got 